Good evening and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. I always say good morning, good evening, good afternoon, but people listening to this episode may be listening at any time in the day. That's the beauty of podcasting, Chad. You can listen on demand whenever you'd like, and we're glad you're joining us. Chad, hit that jingle. So welcome back again. Hopefully you've been looking forward to this episode where we come together and give you a little update on what's happening in the world and how to keep ourselves sane, really. This week, Barry, for you and I, was quite a good week, professionally speaking. Yeah, lots of wins this week. It's one of those weeks that we can really kind of celebrate and rejoice. We had a good chat before this podcast chat about all the various good things happening. And so very grateful for that and really feeling good. Feel like the momentum is going strong and looking forward to almost the second half of the year. Absolutely. It's just creeping up on us so quickly. And by the time we actually get there, this world is going to look so different. Um, Certainly the way we live our day-to-day lives is going to be quite different. So let's plunge right into what's happened this past week and we'll go through our usual episode. The week that was. So talking about us emerging from the other side of COVID-19, the UK is now officially past the peak and it's been announced that the UK has passed the peak, which is very, very positive. Boris later this week is expected to announce the measures to actually ease the lockdown. So that'll probably be around Sunday. And this is in line with the five requirements that have been detailed about a week or two weeks ago for all of the considerations that need to be gone through before actually deciding on these measures. So let's just quickly run through those five requirements. The first is that the NHS is able to cope. Um, We've seen this past week that the NHS Nightingale, that's the emergency hospital in London and certainly a couple of other ones throughout the country, are empty and may potentially be closed down fairly soon, which is very, very positive. Rather have it than not, I suppose. The second one is a sustained fall in deaths. The third one is new infections dropping enough. Fourth one is adequate testing and PPE. And lastly, obviously, no risk of a second peak that overwhelms the NHS. So these are all very logical tests that have been put in place. And it looks like, finally, all of the UNME citizens of the world are going to be actually finding out what these lockdown requirements are going to look like. There's obviously a lot of speculation at this point in time, Barry, so I'm not entirely sure that we actually go into the detail of it. But really good that we actually are now going to get a little bit of certainty later this week. Yeah, I think so. I think that the UK have been going through quite a struggle over the last couple of weeks and finally starting to see the light. And I think like everywhere else in the world, we're trying to look at what is the long-term situation for this disease going to be. We know we can't declare victory on it right now, but how do we reopen the economy? How do we get things going again while managing the spread and managing the disease going forward? And so we'll look forward to Boris's statements over the weekend and see what UK is going to do. It's very dependent on data and very dependent on how they're going to deal with the various jurisdictions, the various kind of areas in the UK. um, And places that are more hard hit, like London, might have to wait a bit longer than, say, some of the countryside areas and that sort of thing. But we'll wait and see what their strategy is going to be. That's obviously the big debate across the world is what should your strategy be? And there's lots of heated debates on either side. And so we look forward to seeing what the UK is going to do in that instance. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to just keep an eye on that. But one of those strategies where we actually have a little bit of news, hot or the press as we record this on Monday evening is the UK's plan to roll out a contact tracing app for COVID-19. So it's just been announced that the trials will actually start to take place on the Isle of Wight tomorrow. So that is Tuesday. And obviously this is going to be done in a few waves. So the first wave is going to be the NHS staff who will be able to go in and download the app. And then thereafter, residents of the Isle of Wight will get a letter on Thursday 
to ask them to install this app. Now, this app, we need to obviously go into quite a bit of how it works and what it does. There's a couple of privacy type discussions, uh, naturally that's gonna come out of this. So Barry, why don't you talk us through the gist of what the app does and uh, why it's so exciting as well as so concerning for some. Yeah, definitely. It's a hotly debated topic and it's something that we're kind of talking about around the world. We've seen different kind of cultural sensitivities to how these sorts of apps are considered around the world. In Asia, they've been used to great effect to really like nail down exactly where the problem areas are, understand exactly how the spread is going yeah. and giving them better data to manage it. But obviously the data ethics on that side is a very different kind of ethics than it is in the Western world. And so this is kind of the first major um, European platform that's going to look at an app like this. And basically how it works, Chad, is that the app is trying to log distances between phones at its very core. Yep. So what's going to happen is once you have the app installed on your phone, it's going to use Bluetooth low energy to monitor what other phones you come into contact with in your day-to-day -day life. So, for example, you go to the grocery store and you're shopping in your aisles. Yep. It'll take a note of which phones you come across in that grocery shop. And then later down the line, if you get the disease or you have the symptoms or something and you notify the NHS on that app, what that app will do is anonymously signal to all the other phones that have come into contact with your phone over the last couple of days to let them know that they've potentially been exposed to the disease and they can go and get tested. So basically, it's taking your location data and trying to map how those phones are moving around the country so that when we do identify a case of the disease or someone who has the symptoms, we don't have to manually trace by trying to ask the person, so who did you come into contact with over the last yep. 10 days? And trying to phone them and trying to get in touch with them, it will automatically be done by the location on those cell phones. Yep. So obviously, it's a much, much better source of data. It's much more objective and less reliant on people remembering things and all that good stuff. But there's uh, some concerns around ethics, and we'll get to those in a bit. Absolutely. Well, in terms of, you know, just people remembering, I suppose it gives you the added dimension of having essentially contact details indirectly of people you don't know. So where you would traditionally do a contact tracing type situation, you'd obviously give them all the details of people you do know. Um, but I suppose that's where it gets a little bit tricky is everyone that you don't. And the grocery store is a great example of that. And in terms of to go into a little bit more specifics, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, actually provided a bit more of a definition there to say significant contact within the last five days which is interesting for me obviously we've heard of the incubation period of the virus you know whether five days is enough or not uh, not entirely sure but they've obviously done their thinking and research and, and this is where they're going to be essentially looking for the most results. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a trade-off here because I think if you're going to go too long, say you have a 14-day period, what you don't want is every single UK citizen getting an <laughs> alert three times a day, yeah. right? Because you don't want to cause that sort of panic. So what you're trying to manage is those false positives, is those notifications in a case where maybe you came across someone 10 days ago, but like just walking past them once and, you, and, and then you get the notification because they've got the disease. Yeah. So you have to manage that trade-off so that you don't kind of piss off your citizens, to be <laughs> honest. And so that's why it's important to have significant contact so it's not just once in a grocery store but actually significant contact and five days is obviously the benchmark that they've set whether that's right or wrong we'll have to find out but hopefully just by doing this you'll get a better sense of where the spread is and you can manage it better you're not going to catch everything it's not a it's not a silver bullet it's not going to solve every problem but at least it gives you some more accurate data to make better decisions as to how you're going to reopen the economy yep. while keeping your healthcare system under control absolutely and the other thing he mentioned is that this is one way to get a bit more of a target 
limited lockdown situation. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of requirements are placed on those people who have tested positive or who have been close to people who have tested positive within those last five days. Now let's get into that ethics debate, Barry, and those privacy concerns. Now obviously you've got the whole population of people who have enrolled themselves onto this app and there is all of this data that's just floating around in the cloud of where everyone is, who they've been in close contact with, etc, etc. Naturally, there's going to be some concerns. Yeah, definitely. And we chatted in the past, Chad, about Google keeping this kind of location data, often in the background, people not knowing that they're collecting this sort of data. And so this is a very, very public, in-your-face acknowledgement that we're going to keep your location data wherever you go around the country. And that makes people very uneasy because that kind of data is very dangerous if in the, if it's in the wrong hands. Sure. And it breaks a lot of the normal privacy rules that we kind of speak of. I think that everyone understands the need for this sort of technology in trying to manage the spread. And these are very unprecedented circumstances, right? Yeah. So this isn't a normal state of affairs. But we still have to be careful about what kind of precedent we set in these sorts of situations and how serious things need to be for us to even consider this sort of privacy breaches. For the app and for the NHS, they're going to be trying to monitor that data. And uh, what they've done, Chad, is they've tried to have they've tried to set up external parties to the NHS and to the government themselves right. to keep them accountable. So they've set up what they've called an external ethics advisory board. And that board's job is purely to keep them accountable, to ensure that the data is collected safely in an ethical way, that it's used correctly, and that when it's no longer needed, it is destroyed forever. Yeah. And uh, so hopefully that board is going to be like effective in what they do. We haven't heard the names on that board or anything yet. But that's a very, very important piece of the check and balance that is sure. needed to ensure this data is used properly. If you imagine a more authoritarian government or maybe a dictator in, in charge or a government that's doing shady things, they could use that data for very, very bad things for yeah. the citizens. Or if you imagine it getting sold or kind of getting into the hands of other parties, it's very, very important that the data is kept very, very clearly and kept in a safe environment so that we don't have any of those leaks or any of those issues. And so we're going to have to wait and see what that board does and what kind of constraints they put on the app. I think this test in the Isle of Wight is going to be a good kind of test of the technology and yeah. see what's going to happen. And hopefully the board is going to look at what happens with that app and maybe adjust the, the recommendations either way. But for anyone interested in privacy or data ethics, there's going to be thousands of ideas about this, thousands of ways of looking at it. And uh, we have to wait and see, is the data anonymized? Is it kind of gathered into clumps and into groups rather than personalized? We have to wait and see all of these things. And there's always this trade-off between how much of the data do you want to use to try and stop the disease spreading versus the privacy concerns. And that's always the trade-off, Chad. Without a doubt. It'll be interesting to see the checks and balances, like you mentioned, that they actually put into place. And also, I suppose, how long this is going to be going on for. You always have to look at the long long-term plan here, I suppose, and whether that is just waiting for the vaccine before this plan is actually stopped in its tracks, or whether it just becomes a case of a new normal and, you know, a lot of those people who are quite rightly concerned about freedom and, you know, liberty and right to privacy now have to just get used to this way of being. That's an important point. I mean, this kind of technology does not work if you don't have everyone on board, right? So it's going to have to come from some sort of change in legislation from the government to say that you need this app on your phone. And however they're going to coerce you into doing that, you're not going to have much of a choice to not have it on your phone if you want to access services and that that sort of thing. And so, again, it's that freedom debate as well. I think in the U.S. they're having huge issues with this. They're having lots of fight back against the U.S. government because of 
the perceived taking away of their freedom and whatnot to try and fight this disease. And so again, it's it's a precedent that is set. And like you say, how long is this going to be in place for? Yeah. If this app is going to be in place for months at a time, people are going to start to worry about what's what it's actually being used for. And so the government has to be very clear with its messaging. It has to be very transparent and upfront with what it's trying to do. And this ethics board needs to really be hard-nosed and really put their foot on the ground and really make sure that this is, this is going the right way. If they get something wrong in this kind of situation, they could damage the reputation for a long, long time. Absolutely. There's all of that, plus, I suppose, GDPR as well. And hopefully all of that data is kept really very secure. Uh, no doubt you're going to have you know a lot of people who are trying to get their hands on that data for the wrong reasons. So yeah, we'll certainly be interesting to see how that all happens. Now moving on to some of the economic effects of the coronavirus. We've been obviously discussing how, you know, this is the natural thing that's going to be happening over the next couple of months. And obviously the transport and airline industry, one of the first to see that, to bear that brunt. British Airways this past week has been rumored to cut up to 12,000 jobs. And a lot of passengers who have been applying for refunds for, for tickets have been getting these vouchers and I suppose the natural question now is whether those vouchers actually have value and whether they're going to be able to be honored in the future obviously really tricky yeah this is one of the interesting things that we have to look at in a post-covid world as to how these industries restart and how they get back up to scratch like you say those vouchers could be worth nothing if the airline doesn't exist anymore if it's not at its full capacity or doesn't have the kind of the infrastructure needed to service all of those obligations and so the airlines are, have been hit hugely by this thing and they will continue to struggle in, into the coming year um, even if, if all the travel bans get lifted a lot of us will choose not to travel yeah. right and we'll choose to kind of stay where we are for a bit and so the transport industry like you say is is under severe pressure for a long time and uh, i think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of changes to business models what kind of changes to fixed costs or to infrastructure and we see in this industry it's traditionally been very capital intensive yeah. very much we're going to buy the planes and we try and use them over time and uh, lots and lots of capital fixed costs we'll have to wait and see is we can maybe innovate on that maybe innovate on how we think about world travel and maybe it takes new companies to come up and kind of take over from ba right british Airways has been, been around for a long time and they're the yeah. traditional kind of market leader in the space. I wonder if you can see some innovative new startups or innovative new airline companies coming out of this virus and changing the way that we think about the airline industry. Yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see. We've obviously got loads of low-cost airlines out here in the UK and a really, really tough market in normal times. Um, obviously, now with the added challenges, we'll certainly have to keep an eye on that space. One of the other things which I found really interesting to see this past week was Shell and how it broke its sacred dividend policy for the first time since World War II. Now, Barry, I don't know if you know, but Shell is one of the highest dividend-paying uh, companies in the space, and they have, for the first time, time, as I said, since World War II, cut their dividend payout by two-thirds. Now, not an easy decision to make for any CEO, but obviously given the situation that is on their hands and given the oil market and the oil prices, which we discussed last week, the natural thing that needs to be done. They're also going to be looking to scrap their bonuses and undertake a whole bunch of cost cutting as well over the next couple of months. And I mean, just for me, looking at this kind of dividend policy and, and how much capital they can actually free up by doing such a thing certainly looks like a sensible move. 
It has to be done, Chad. It has to be done. I mean, that's that's one job I don't want is to be the head of an yeah. oil company right now, right? We've, we've seen what's happened in that market and things are going crazy. And so I'm sure they've had lots of their shareholders selling their stock and kind of pushing the price even further down and down and down. And so this is another blow. But like you say, it's necessary to, to release that capital to get liquidity into the business and give them a chance to survive this period. Um, and so I think that it's understandable. I think if you're a shareholder and you're holding for the long term, hopefully you understand this kind of move. But for anyone who's just buying these shares for dividends. I know there's investors out there who yeah. believe that they only buy shares for the dividends, right? And that's kind of their investment philosophy. Sure. And so Shell will fall out of a lot of those kind of mandates and a lot of those you know, philosophies if they do this for a long period of time. But hopefully it's a short-term measure to try and get them in a place to, to, to move forward. Yeah. And what's really important is that they also announce scrapping the bonuses and, and, and those sort of things at the same time. Because often the shareholders lose out at the expense of these highly paid directors yeah. and CEOs and that sort of thing. So good to see those in, in tandem and and we'll sure. wait to see if this is a sustainable thing or if they're going to get back to their policy eventually. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, moving on to one of the other things on the UK side is that furloughed workers have been offered online skills training for free. These are programs that have been rolled out by the Open University and Google as well. And these are focusing on numeracy, coding and internet skills. Now, there's a key focus here on online. And essentially what they've done here is preempted that post-COVID-19 there's going to be a shift towards remote working and sort of online working. And uh, I mean, in the meantime, people are finding that this is a great way to build a sense of routine, purpose, self-belief. Um, how fantastic that you're getting these free online skills training workshops at this time. I think it's really important and I'm surprised I haven't heard more of these sorts of programs around the world because everyone is facing the same issue. And I think, Chad, people in our generation take it for granted because we grew up with computers, we grew up with with the net, we understand yeah. how all these things work, and it's much easier for us to make that transition. But if you're a little bit older, or you're maybe not as computer savvy as us, it really is a big, big jump to say, all of a sudden, now I must move all of my work to online and start to understand all these new technologies and yeah. ways of work and whatnot. So it's a great way to do it. I think it's very important. Um, I'd love to see something like this for South Africa, because I know we have a lot of people here who need those skills desperately. And, uh, and like we said in previous episodes, they are online. There's lots of yeah. amazing resources online and, and you, you've mentioned a couple more here today and so i think it's a really cool program and hopefully we'll see it around the rest of the world if this works Absolutely. Well, just to kind of confirm what that furloughed worker definition is, that is people who have been placed on furlough by their companies. Uh, that's as part of the coronavirus job protection scheme here in the UK, where the government is paying up to 80% of those people's salaries. Um, obviously, during that time, those people can't actually legally be working. And so that's just a fantastic, fantastic thing to be able to give these people in the meantime. Absolutely great to see. I wanted to actually just check in, Barry, just to go on a bit of a detour. How is your 100 days of code going <laughs> <laughs> chad it is it is is very intermittent <laughs> i think that's the word to say uh, i find myself struggling sometimes to to grind through the bug hunting yep. uh, it's fun when you're doing the coding it's not so fun when you've got three or four days of just looking for mistakes <laughs> and so that kind of frustrates me sometimes um so it's been on, on and off i definitely haven't been doing it every day like i should have been but making progress i think i'm on day 60 at the moment um and slowly but surely we're working through it and i'm enjoying the process even though it's taking longer than 100 days Good to hear, Barry. Uh, those bugs definitely need to be found. So hopefully you'll find them sometime <laughs> soon. Let's carry on. So the US has 
now past 1 million infections as we speak. It's currently at 1.2 million and the deaths are approaching 70,000. Staggering, staggering numbers. I mean, I haven't really been following the intricate developments this past week, but just those kind of numbers. And when you look at the map and the growth trajectory that we're seeing coming out of the US, it's really insane. Yeah, those numbers are definitely dominating kind of the global um, pandemic understanding and they really are the epicenter right now. We're looking at places like New York, which are in huge, huge crisis at the moment. Yeah. Those numbers keep rising and rising and rising. Luckily, we've seen some stabilization in some of the outer states, some of the states that don't get as much traffic and kind of we're seeing a little bit of stabilization there. But in the major metropolitan areas, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, etc., we're seeing still like exponential growth. And yeah. so that's worrying. I think according to the experts, the death toll looks like it's going to end up somewhere between 100 and 200,000 wow. people dead, wow. which is a crazy number. And if you look at the deaths as of now, Chad, they've already passed how many soldiers died in the Vietnam War, yeah. which is a crazy figure as well. And so I think for the US, they still have a, a long fight ahead. Obviously, there's huge debate as to whether the government was adequately prepared. Yeah. There's been huge shortages of PPE and shortages of ventilators and that sort of thing and uh, lots and lots of debate about the politics of all of this of course you've got a yeah. uh, an election coming up and so it's very difficult to read kind of both sides of the story the left and the right and get a real understanding of what's happening on the ground but the US needs to fight and fight and fight to try and get this thing out of control and keep that death rate as, as low as it can and under the circumstances absolutely tragic to see those kinds of numbers and to draw a comparison like that Barry to the Vietnam War. Absolutely insane. I mean, one thing that the US have been focusing on this week, very strangely, and I suppose you could kind of wonder whether they're trying to detract attention, is the release of UFO footage from the Pentagon. Now, this footage is goes back to 2014 and has been in the public domain since then, but only now it's been actually released by them. And, uh, you know, they've actually come forward and owned up to that footage. It was absolute heaven for the conspiracy theorists, Chad, when they found this out because, uh, of course, UFOs are are a very niche topic and a very kind of passionate audience who believe in them. And like you say, when they released this, that kind of way, the conversation went that way for, for a large yep. portion of American conspiracy theorists. And those videos have been released before. They've been leaked. Everyone's seen them already. But for them to come out of a Pentagon, to come out of the Department of Defense and have them like admit that these are unidentified flying objects is a bit crazy. And so people ran away with the story and really like had a ball with it. Um, I think objectively, I don't know if you've seen the videos, Chad, but they're not really conclusive. Yep. They're just kind of blurry dots on a screen it's very hard to see what there is there um, but for those enthusiasts who've gone deep into this topic and have been studying it for years and years and years it really is a big deal and so I think it was a kind of a, an interesting time to, to do it I, I agree with you like a weird situation right now to release this you could have released yeah. it anytime um, so that is strange um, but we'll have to wait and see what comes of it and uh, quite frankly maybe they did it just to get people off their back to kind of get okay cool here it is show it to yeah. you guys I don't know do you think there's aliens, Chad? It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what my thoughts are on that topic, to be fair. In terms of this footage, I completely agree with you, Barry. It, it's so inconclusive. It's not even funny. Just these tiny little dots. It almost looks like I'm looking at some kind of baby sort of ultrasound in terms of the quality of the images. They're not... <laughs> This, this is not the most high definition kind of, you know, quality. And, and certainly in terms of the, those little dots, it doesn't really tell us much. But I mean, it is really interesting. H how about you, Barry? What do you think? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with you on the video. It's not really Netflix quality, if we, we put it that yeah. way. And uh, it's a very strange kind of field. I, I've looked into it a little bit, and uh, it, it kind of seems like you see what you want to see. So for the people who right. believe in this stuff, and they've been researching it, and they, and they understand the history, and they understand where these videos came from and whatnot, you can see anything in, in something if you really look for it hard enough. It's one of those like Rorschach tests where they put the ink blot up, and they say, okay, what do you see? And you right. see, oh, I see my dead mother, etc., etc., etc. So I think it's one of those things. If you're looking for it potentially there's information there potentially it kind of confirms some of your beliefs um, but at the moment I can't think there's any real evidence there when mm. it comes to aliens Chad I, I kind of I sort of do believe there might be life elsewhere in the planet. Yeah. I think it's crazy to, to to be arrogant enough to think that we are the only life in this gigantic infinite universe. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm, I think there might be life elsewhere, but I don't think they visited here, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it's an interesting debate, and that will certainly not be a debate that's going to end anytime soon. Um, so we'll see what happens in the coming years. One of the other things, and the last thing on the week that was, was I was lying in bed on Twitter. I think it was Saturday or Sunday and uh, just logged in to see Elon Musk was trending. And uh, why was he <laughs> trending? Well, he did a tweet to say that in his opinion, and uh, what I mean by that is IMO, the Tesla shares were overvalued. Now, insane to see a CEO founder put that up on Twitter um, in such an in informal way. And right on the back of that, we saw a wipe off of $14 billion of value. <laughs> now, he himself obviously is a big shareholder and he lost $3 billion from the move. Why would he do that? Elon Musk is confusing the living daylights out of everybody. <laughs> I think that he's, he's, over the last kind of year or two, he's really come a bit loose and he seems to be more of a troll every single day. If you look at his Twitter, it's filled with memes, it's filled with internet culture stuff, it's filled with a lot of nonsense, to be honest. Yeah. And if you're this big tech titan, you've got this huge shareholding, it's very strange to see something like this. And Chad, to be honest, I thought this was illegal. I thought that if you were yeah. like a publicly listed company, Definitely. I don't think you were allowed to make these sorts of statements. Yeah. And he's done it before. I remember uh, kind of a few months ago, he made some comments about how the share price was 420 or something. And he made a, a comment to kind of the, the, the drug kind of culture and got into huge trouble from his legal right. team, etc. And so it's a very strange thing. And people are debating whether he was drunk or high or just kind yeah. of bored and trolling. Who knows what? Um, and like, like you said, 14 billion came off their market cap. What was interesting, Chad, was what was a bit strange is that if you look at their share price during the coronavirus, at a time when the whole S&P has been going on a downward trajectory at a rate of knots, Tesla's gone up over 30%. Wow. So it has been a strange thing they've gone against kind of the coronavirus trajectory. So so that's kind of maybe why he's thinking it's overvalued. Mm. But to tweet that is just crazy in my mind. Absolutely. I completely agree with you in terms of the legality there. Um, some of the memes that I saw on the back of that were, you know, some guy standing outside of the SEC and saying, what the heck? Um, and, you know, it's understandable. <laughs> and so I'm interested to see what happens here. Obviously, we've seen bodies throughout the world relax their kind of regulation and legislation and personal liability on directors during this time. Um, but for me, that just seems absolutely reckless and just silly. Like you said, even if it is defying the odds at this time, and even if those gains in value are a little bit misplaced, still really not the right channel and not the right thing to do, in my opinion. 
Yeah, he's such an important figure. If we look at the future of technology, if we look at the future of kind of renewable energy and those sorts of things, yep. future of space travel even, he is an immensely important figure. And we need him to be at the forefront of that and not playing in Twitter battles, right? So <laughs> I think that the more we get these kind of people off Twitter and keep yep. them on their, on what they're really good at, that's really important. And so I'm hoping that this kind of blows over and he can kind of figure it out or whatever they have to do legally to, to fix the situation. But I really want him to focus on making amazing products and pushing technology forward yeah. rather than playing in twitter games with memesters i mean we don't need any of that absolutely completely agree with you barry well let's move on to stuff we found interesting this past week stuff i found interesting well barry found something interesting which i find interesting that he found it interesting and it's to do with <laughs> makeup <laughs> tell me about it barry <laughs> Oh, Chad, I knew you were going to bring this up. I, I agree with you. I mean, Chad, believe it or not, none of us are experts in makeup. And uh, for, for the most part, we've stayed, we've stayed away from makeup discussions on Across the Pond. Um, but there's a little bit of tech here and there's a little bit of augmented reality. And that's why I thought it was interesting. I'll be the first to admit that I know nothing about the field of makeup. I know, and I, I call it a field. There we go. I know nothing about the industry. Um, but this is quite interesting. And uh, basically, it's talking about how Instagram filters are changing the way that makeup companies think about their products. So if you're on Instagram, you know all about those filters. You've seen all of those girls on your Instagram with those pretty filters with butterflies on them and dog ears and thousands and thousands of different ones. And uh, for every Instagram model, the filter is kind of the, the bread and butter. That's what you put on yourself and that's what you do for your Instagram stories. And as they become more popular, people being able to create their own filters, right? So we're seeing yep. kind of a trend where people are creating their own filters. Those filters are going viral. People are sharing them with each other. They're using them. And so a filter that some developer creates like in the middle of nowhere can go viral and have thousands and millions and millions of views, yeah. depending on how good it is. And we've seen an example in that over the last kind of couple of weeks. And it's something called Butterfly Pretty. And I didn't know much about it, but after reading about it, it's apparently like a beauty filter that does something to your face and puts butterflies in your eyebrows and that kind of stuff. And it went super viral. Okay. Some, I think over a couple of days, it became the number one filter on Instagram almost overnight, oh. which is crazy to think about. And what on the back of that, what, what these makeup guys are trying to do is trying to get on this train and trying to use these filters to really show what the makeup will do for their users. So for example, you could imagine a makeup um, company coming up with a new look or a new color or a new style and making a filter that basically applies that style onto the person's face in a virtual way. Yep. So I could put that filter up and see what I would look like with that particular makeup. And what these guys are doing is now partnering with these influencers, partnering with AR developers to do exactly that. And maybe it's going to open up a market chat for I put this filter on, I see that I look good in this filter, and there's a one-click buy option to buy that makeup that's going to make me look like that in real life. And that's kind of yeah. the dream. The, the dream for all of us is to look like we do with Instagram filters, but in real life. And so we're going to wait and see whether these makeup companies are going to actually get on board with this. I think that we've seen a few start to play in this space, and it speaks a lot about where the future of AR might be. AR has been one of those technologies where it's been kind of around for a while. We haven't really seen lots of really unique use cases yep. and use cases that really can make lots and lots of money. And this one looks like a potential use case for me, Chad, that could really be lucrative for those makeup companies. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, just to kind of backtrack a little, if you don't know what AR is, it stands for augmented reality. And it really is where you use your phone's camera, um, hopefully with a bit of 
depth map technology um, to kind of interact with the environment that you're in. And these types of applications certainly are really very interesting and certainly are very promising. Like you said, Barry, if you kind of have that additional swipe up that Instagram already has and, uh, you know, marry those two together, you certainly could see some really interesting marketing campaigns come about. Um, The interesting thing for me is a lot of these filters actually change what your face looks like. A lot of them make the eyes a little bit bigger, this face a little bit slimmer. And so that's always the, the worry here is, you know, do they do it in an ethical way in which they keep your face as it is and simply add the makeup in a realistic way that it would actually really look like in real life? What do you think, Barry? Yeah, that's the dark side. And that's kind of the other side of the coin of all this technology is that we've, we've seen Instagram become this place where you put your best foot forward and yeah. it's not realistic at all if you look through anybody's feeds it's a highlight reel of the best parts of their life sure. it's where they look the best it's kind of the perfect lighting the perfect angles all the filters on top and uh, what this does for body image issues what this does for people trying to relate to other humans on the platform yep. is, is is a big debate and like you say how realistic are these filters actually going to be and how realistic realistic are they going to be compared to the makeup and so hopefully you're going to see kind of a toning down of these crazy filters that like you say change the eye shape and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff and hopefully just show maybe color gradients maybe textures that sort of thing um, but unfortunately the incentive here is to make that person look absolutely unbelievable so that they get into the emotional state to make the purchase sure. and so we have to keep them accountable for that and see what they we'll see where that goes i think that instagram have got a bit of a problem in their hands because this kind of image thing they have going on is not good psychologically. And so while it's addictive and while it's very, very aspirational, somewhere along the line, things are going to break where people are going to fight back against this perfect, perfect, perfect all the time thing that's leading to a lot of mental health issues that we're not discussing. Absolutely. I mean, as far as I was following this subject, they were going to be removing the number of likes. And I think they tested that in a few different countries. Um, I, I certainly need to you know, go in and have a look at it again. But certainly a worrying side effect of this social network that is image-based and you know, that, like you said, does show that highlights reel. Another interesting application that I've seen uh, of something similar is where you need to get a set of glasses, a set of frames, a set of sunglasses. Obviously, now you can't go into your opt- optician or you can't go in and and have a look at various frames and that kind of thing. So I've seen a lot of websites have actually brought that aboard. And I must admit, it seems a little bit glitchy at this point in time. But, you know, now that the iPad Pro has a LiDAR sensor, which obviously will make AR a lot better, we might see these kinds of things rolled out across devices. And this might become the new way we shop for glasses. I think it's a good point. And, and, and people have been kind of predicting this sort of future for a while now. And so we're starting to see, like you say, the technology being built into our phones that can allow more sophistication and less kind of gimmicky stuff. Uh, filters, of course, started as very gimmicky and yeah. they've made a huge progress to, even to today. True. So who knows what it looks like in five years' time? Who knows what kind of products will be sold based purely on the AR of your own phone? It's really interesting to think about. Well, let's move on to the next one, Barry. You had a bit of a journey this week that was very different. Take us through it. Yeah, so I thought this was fascinating, Chad. Um, so obviously, we are all staying at home. We are staying away from public spaces. We are not getting anywhere near other humans like good citizens we are. Yep. And uh, one of the things that you're missing out potentially on is culture, right? Being able to go to a movie or being able to go out to an art piece or go to a gallery or, in this particular example, a museum. And so what I found, Chad, was a a video tour or virtual tour through a museum called the Hermitage, which is one of the biggest in the world in St. Petersburg in Russia. And basically, this museum tour is five and a half hours of video (laughs) on YouTube, right? And what makes it really cool is that it's a one-take video. 
So it's a one-take moving tour through this museum, going through all the exhibits, going through kind of the art stuff, the sculptures, everything, including some live art pieces, some interactive pieces, etc. And this kind of one-shot tour is very eerie for the fact that it's completely isolated and alone yeah so there's no people in the museum you have the whole museum to yourself <laughs> as you watch this it shows you all the art pieces it shows you everything and it's set to this very inspirational music throughout yeah. and so i found it a very fascinating experience a kind of a very moving one to be honest um because i'm a huge museum nerd i think that anyone who knows me knows that whenever i go overseas i spend a crazy amount of time <laughs> in museums and all my friends think i'm nuts um but i've always found it the best way to kind of get a crack course on that city or in that country and get a sense of the cultural nuance in those places and so that's why i love the museum yeah. so much but in in this kind of instance you don't have to get you don't have to stand there for six hours you can sit in a comfortable chair on your couch and go through this museum you don't have to fight all the crowds around all the famous <laughs> objects your feet don't get sore after standing for hours and hours yeah. it really was a really interesting way to view a, a museum and think about the art and think about kind of the cultural nuance yeah. even though you're not physically there and I wonder what that's going to do for future museum um, tourism or kind of um, virtual tourism in this way. Like, what does this experience match up to a physical experience when you're actually there fighting the crowds, fighting the fatigue, et cetera, et cetera? Amazing. It sounds like such a cool experience and such a cool experiment, really. And I have two questions on the back of this. So firstly is one of the appeal for me in going into museums is being able to spend as long as you want and read all the little bits that are next to the various pieces. So do you still get an opportunity to do that? That's my first question. And secondly, does this make you want to visit that museum even more than before? Or are you good now? Have you got your fix of the Hermitage Museum? This is obviously just for me to kind of gauge, you know, in terms of releasing this for free, are they actually going to get a benefit in the number of tourists or the opposite? What do you think? Those are really good questions. I think to answer your first one, um, this this particular one was very focused on the art and very focused on the visual stuff. So while you did get to read some of the plaques, you, you certainly don't get to spend the kind of time right. that you're, you're chatting about. But I could imagine a version where they do have the, the, the writing for you or kind of the descriptions yeah. for you and you can pause the video and really in, engage with that. So I can imagine a situation where they could do that. Yeah. This particular museum is much heavier on art, less heavy on kind right. of the history and and that sort of thing. And so it didn't really lend itself to that sort of thing. The second piece, I think I do want to go there more after this experience. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's just me because I'm a huge nerd. I think this, there really is something to be said about being in that environment and really immersing yourself in that experience. The art is beautiful and the kind of the, the history there is amazing. And I've always wanted to go to St. Petersburg. It's one of the one of the very high in my list for when it comes to cities. But it's got amazing theater. It's got like one of the best ballets in the world. It's got great yeah. opera. It's got all this kind of culture. And so this museum is very, very high in my list for that. And I don't think having watched this video that I've satiated that desire. I think that if I did go to St. Petersburg, I would still go and spend those hours in and maybe even appreciate it more because I've seen it once already. Um, what it allows you to do is to check out all the various exhibits. So yep. I didn't watch all five and a half hours. I'm not, I'm not a <laughs> madman. I watched kind of pieces of it, right? And what it allowed me to do potentially was to think about, cool, yep. okay, these exhibits I think are really cool. I can spend my time there and I can ignore these exhibits. Yep. What you find in these museums, Chad, is when you have maybe 50, 60 exhibits, you don't want to waste two hours on exhibits you don't like. 
And you don't know which exhibits you won't like until you actually go and waste those two hours, right? And so maybe this virtual thing is, is, is to maybe map out the museums, get a sense of what it looks like, get a sense of what is in there, and then to plan your time more accordingly so you can get the most out of your experience. Does that sound like it makes sense? Absolutely. I think it's great. And I think it's the way that people should look at tourism going forward. I certainly think it would be unconventional to release this type of footage for free because I think a lot of you know museum owners and just tourism boards and that kind of stuff want to really monetize as much as they can. But for me, the whole point of going to a museum is the fact that you're there in front of the pieces. And so for every single one of those exhibits, you could have done a Google search and found as much as you wanted to find out about it, seen pictures of it, etc., etc. But there's something about being in that building and that's the novelty and that's where it is for me. So for me, I think it's so positive that they can release this for free, not monetize it, and you know, hopefully still encourage you then to come back at a later date. I think it's great. Um, so thanks for sharing, Barry. One of the things I found interesting this week was obviously in the tech space. Now, anyone who knows me knows I'm a major tech head. And uh, obviously, we've been fascinated with sleep. And that's been a key topic, actually, since we started this podcast. And uh, it's advice by a company called Withings called the Sleep Analyzer. And essentially what it is, is the first device that can detect sleep apnea without requiring you to actually wear anything. Uh, These results, as far as they say, are sleep lab worthy. And uh, basically what it tracks is your breathing pattern, your heart rate, and your body movements. This is interesting because it's with a sensor that needs to be placed underneath the mattress. So by the time all of these pulses and readings and et cetera get to the actual sensor, it's gone through all of the springs in the mattress etc and that's why I find it so fascinating the fact that you don't have to wear anything and some sensor underneath your mattress can detect your heart rate breathing pattern and body movements I think it's fantastic and if anyone has heard of sleep apnea and how fatal it is really I think this is a massive massive diagnostic kind of breakthrough that develops this sort of tech and rolls it out to the mass population it's really fantastic to see I think we've seen this resurgence of sleep kind of discussions and debates over the last few years people are really starting to take it seriously and luckily that's forcing smart people into the tech space to try and take sleep to the next level and like like you Chad I think this is a great kind of innovation because at the moment your only real options are to wear a watch or wear some sort of ring most people don't want to wear those, those sorts of things in bed the other option is to put your phone on the on the bedside table and use the microphone but that doesn't seem that accurate either yeah. and so to try and get really accurate readings from your sensor from your pillow etc all of these tech that is coming out is really fascinating fascinating um, I think that it's the the jury is still out as to like how accurate this data can actually be like sure. you say there's a lot of things in between and we we'll have to find out over time whether this yeah. actually works but if this is able to solve that problem able to kind of give that early warning signal about things like sleep apnea it can be very very valuable for people and that is to say nothing about those people who are healthy but just want to monitor sure. their sleep better and so it really is a fascinating piece of technology I'm, I'm excited to see what happens and Chad my only question is when are you ordering one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to be ordering this one anytime soon, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but you never know. Um, if I find it along on a sale at some point, you never know. May as well uh, may as well jump <laughs> along. I just really find that sleep apnea bit really, really interesting because, you know, this is a condition that constricts people's breathing while they're fast asleep and have no idea and, and people die from it. Um, and so for me, from that point of view, I, I just think it's so worthwhile beyond the majority of the population who have these sleep trackers just to kind of find for a little bit of interest and you know really look at how deep you slept etc etc this is actually giving you some really really useful medical kind of advice and uh, hopefully would make some positive 
impacts there. So I find that really interesting. Now, talking about buying new devices, buying new things, Barry, my iPad came with a complimentary membership to Apple TV Plus. So a one-year membership to that service. And for a while, obviously, before lockdown, I was walking along on tube platforms and looking at all the various advertisements and saw all of these Apple TV original adverts come about and kind of really just wondered how good these productions really actually were. Now, as soon as I logged on to that platform, I, I certainly saw it was fairly limited in terms of what's been uploaded at the moment, but went straight on to something called The Morning Show, which houses for a cast, Barry, Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, Reese Witherspoon, and more in a series. Sure. Apple certainly knows how to spend money on content. Eh? We, we know that for sure. That's an amazing cost, Chad. And like you say, Apple TV has kind of been... It's, it's, it's not the darling of online streaming media. It's made some mistakes in its past and it doesn't have kind of the diversity and kind of the, the, the backlog that you would see on a Netflix and stuff. Uh, but this sounds really cool. So what's it all about, Chad? Yeah, so this show is essentially based on the Me Too movement. And so there's obviously lots of parallels. Weinstein's name is actually mentioned. And essentially it's, a, it's about the news anchor, one of the news anchors being directly involved in sexual harassment in the workplace and following that whole journey. Um, for me, obviously the world of news and media is fascinating and so to kind of get a bit of a peek behind what might be unfolding in this world in the studio and the dynamics between hosts and teams etc etc is really really fascinating um, for me it's all about the production value every single episode for me feels like it's a film in terms of the production value. It's just right up there. And watching every single episode is super cinematic. Uh, the storytelling is absolutely fantastic. And I really just think they've done such a good job, Barry. That sounds really cool, Chad. Is it kind of a fictional story or is it a documentary or is it somewhere in between? Like what is kind of the angle they're going for? Yeah, so as far as I know, it is a fictional story. But like I said, they are using the Me Too movement, which is a very, very real uh, thing that happened and obviously using Weinstein as an example. So I think there are some really, really interesting topics that are brought about in the series. And I think it's an important one um, for us to all think about the various parts of this debate and really think about it from every single perspective, uh, which is why I I certainly have been getting a lot of value out of it. It certainly looks to kind of clarify, I think, some of those blurred lines that we see in uh, these types of cases and uh, and really just show you both sides of the debate um, in a way that, for me, is really, really compelling. That's fascinating, Chad. And you, you almost sold me on the Apple TV Plus subscription. <laughs> so I, I'm looking forward to hearing the, the last two episodes and hearing what you think about those. But I think I, lo I love those kind of um, series where they take real-life situations and real-life environments and fictionalize them to give them some license to kind of tackle these issues in a different way it reminds me a little bit of a, t of a tv show called the newsroom okay. which, which was, came out a few years ago and was basically based on a newsroom what they would do is they take a real life news story so for example when they caught bin laden or kind of the egypt uprising etc they would take a real news story and they would put it in the hands of this fictional news organization and show them dealing with the various ethical dilemmas dealing with the various kind of yeah. personnel stuff and, and a little bit of romance a little bit of action along the way and i really enjoy that series because it, it kind of mixing the fiction with the real life stuff yeah. and that's what it yeah. sounds like this program is trying to do absolutely and uh, i certainly recommend 
going to try and watch it. As far as I know, the Apple TV subscription is not too expensive, certainly not as much as Netflix. So even if you do get it for a month and kind of watch that series and you know see what you think of the rest of the content they have on there, certainly worth checking out, especially now that we have some time on our hands. Now, the last thing that I found interesting this week was actually today when I watched the daily coronavirus briefing and how they have changed their data source in trying to track how effective this lockdown has been and how people have actually complied with it. And that is that previously they would gather actual data from cars and motor vehicle travel, which I guess would be from, you know, fuel and tolls and that kind of thing. And also in terms of the public transport from the in the form of buses and trains and actually look at the spend that's been happening over, over time. And they've actually changed that to look at the search volume of Apple Maps directions for buses and walking and et cetera, et cetera, which for me is really, really interesting to see the government taking that approach. They've obviously assessed that the majority of the population is using Apple devices, which for me is really interesting for them to be able to put reliance on that data source. And not only using Apple devices, but choosing to use Apple Maps, Chad. I mean, I'm team Google Maps all the way. (laughs) And in my mind, Google Maps is way better than Apple Maps. And so I didn't think anyone used Apple Maps, but clearly they do. And so it is a very interesting thing to use. Um, It makes makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that for for a country like the UK, that data is very valuable and representative of the the population. And they've obviously figured out or decided that this is more accurate than what they were using previously. Um, It's an interesting way forward. And it it kind of points to how this data is going to be used going forward forward in other instances right the data that lives on our phones with our locations and all these sorts of things there's so much value in that thing when they say data is the new oil they really mean it and here's it's another example of using that data for a a reason we would not have predicted a couple years ago Absolutely. And I suppose the other interesting thing is how these companies are now sharing that data with governments. So obviously this comes right as we're talking about Google and Apple collaborating on developing these kind of contract tracing apps. And so on the back of that, they've obviously been sharing a lot more data with governments. Um, And so that's interesting to me to see uh, that they're actually using these figures in their daily briefings, which I just thought was worth bringing up. Shall we look ahead, Barry? Let's do it. Looking ahead. All right, so looking ahead this week, we are talking about a rather big breakthrough in the field of AI, Chair. This was something that came out a few days ago, and I've really been enjoying reading about it and listening to the hype and listening to all the people going mad. It really is a big breakthrough for artificial intelligence, and that is an AI system that generates original music, Chad, in the wow. style of a, of a specific artist. So, for example, you can go onto the site right now. It's called Jukebox. And you can listen to a Frank Sinatra song sung by Frank Sinatra that's completely created by artificial intelligence. The chords, the rhythm, even the singing himself. So, Frank Sinatra singing is created by artificial intelligence. What? And so, it is an amazing, amazing achievement. It's obviously not perfect. It sounds a bit eerie. It sounds like a ghost of Frank Sinatra, (laughs) which I suppose it is in in a way. And they've done this for various, various bits and pieces. So, if you go and look at the examples, there's a kind Kanye West one, there's a, there's a Frank Ocean one, there's a Frank Sinatra, there's all sorts of things, Elvis Presley, etc. Showing how they can pick a genre and pick an artist and create a brand new song out of nothing, out of code, Insane. basically. And uh, the songs the songs don't make sense, of course, we haven't got there yet. The songs, the lyrics are very strange and very bizarre, <laughs> but the sound is eerie and very, very scary. Um, and so it really is a big breakthrough for AI because music is very difficult, Chad. I mean, yeah. a lot of people have been debating whether we'd ever be able to kind of 
get to the arts when it comes to automation and AI. A lot of a lot of people will think that cool AI will be able to do computation, it'll be able to do like um, software stuff, coding, those sorts of things that are easily automated. But the artistic stuff, the creativity of humans, won't be able to be automated. Yeah. And then you see something like this, and you're like, oh. If this carries on for 10 more years, Chad, I don't know what's going to happen to our creativity. Um, because at the end of the day, even though the waveforms of music are infinitely unique, they are difficult to model, it's very difficult to understand diversity of tone and texture and different instruments and whatnot. At the end of the day, music is just patterns, whether we like it or not, yep. right? Yep. And so if a model is able to pick up those patterns and you can feed it enough data, eventually it's going to get to a stage, I think, we'll be able to create original music that might go to the top of our top 40 charts. What do you think, Chad? That's insane. That just changes the game completely. Um, I wonder who even created this and why, to be completely honest. Did they feel like there was a lack of music in the world? I find it absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to hear one of those top 40 originals. Um, for me, who is going to generate <laughs> the royalties for that kind of thing? Who's going to get copyright over it? That's just so interesting. Definitely. It's a big debate. And uh, of course, when we think about the, the modeling and whatnot, this was, this was done by an AI hub, right? It's done by a company called OpenAI, which right. is probably one of the leading AI developers in the world right now. And they're not doing it to make money off music, right? They're not thinking of music as a <laughs> as an income stream. They're doing it to prove how good the technology can get and prove how they can take a very difficult task and move forward on it. And so music is one of those things where they can prove themselves. They're learning a lot about how AI works and how these models work in tackling music i don't think they want to kind of create music on their own that's not really the reason for doing it but chad all their code is open source it's all available on github right. you can go and download it tomorrow if you want and play around with it um, and so it really is a fascinating look at what the future of ai might look like maybe it's worth talking about a little bit about how they did it chad yeah definitely. with any of these ai platforms they need lots and lots of data because on a very basic level, what these what these models are doing is ingesting lots and lots of data, looking for patterns, and then recreating according to those patterns. That's like at a very basic level what these things are doing. What they did was they fed this algorithm 1.2 million songs from around the world and modeled those wavelengths into code, right? right. And then paired that code with the lyrics and with the metadata. So, for example, the artist name and the artist type and all that kind of thing. Then training a model on that data and then looking for specific artists and specific genres, they were able to create that music in that particular style. And so the model learns without human supervision as to what those patterns are. Wow. So what was really cool, Chad, was that the model was able to group musicians based on genre. So you can see a little grouping that, that they've done. And without the humans inputting any information about genre, they were able to group the rock musicians in one place, the pop in one place, the opera in one place, the, the R&B and the hip hop, et cetera, et cetera. And so seeing that grouping is, is fascinating and uh, really is a really interesting way to look at what music actually is. And uh, when you listen to these things, Chad, which I, I look forward to you doing, <laughs> you get the sense that this is a this is a kind of a sound from another world or a sound from the future potentially. And wow. it's very, very scary. Yeah, it really sounds scary. I wonder if there was any new genres that were picked up from those groupings. Do you know out of interest? I don't know about any new genres. But what they did pick up was random associations that people don't normally think about. Right. So one of the interesting associations that it did pull up is it put Jennifer Lopez very close to Dolly Parton. <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of an association that none of us would make normally. Yeah. 
But apparently, according to this model, <laughs> their music is quite similar and in a similar kind of style. And oh. so I think it's interesting to see, it, there's a lovely diagram on their site which t- shows you pictures of all the various artists and where they've grouped them depending right. on what the model thinks. And so it's fascinating to kind of click through and see these random associations. Um, I think it's really, really cool. And we'll have to wait and see what happens. Obviously, they released it a couple of days ago. And so now the internet's going to go wild <laughs> and every AI developer who's interested in this stuff is going to start playing with it. Yeah. At the moment, there's a few limitations. The first thing that came out of this is that this algorithm didn't pick out the idea of a chorus for some reason. Okay. So choruses are a big part of music and sure. there's lots of repeating choruses in every single song basically and for some reason the, the songs that this, this AI created didn't really have a repeatable chorus <laughs> which was a strange thing to find out so that was interesting the second thing is that there's lots of noise. Obviously, you're playing with waveforms yeah. like this. There's a lot of noise. So it really sounds like one of those lo-fi, old-school record <laughs> players with those lots of static in the background, which is cool for some for some yeah. people. I think the aesthetic is cool. Um, but we, we definitely need to be clearer in if it's, if it's going to make uh, any impact on the music world. Sure. And the last thing, Chad, is it took nine hours <laughs> of computer work to create one minute of audio. Wow. So it's not exactly efficient. It's not exactly um, blitzfinnig, as, as we say in Afrikaans. Um, but it certainly is a big step forward. And it really does worry a lot of us who think that AI could never get to creativity. And that's an interesting yeah. debate to have. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I certainly think whenever this debate comes out about AI, it is that limitation of the human aspects of us and creativity being the core one. And so, you know, us thinking we can kind of stay ahead of this um, fourth industrial revolution are, are actually thinking to move into the creative fields and moving to be more creative, even if it is in commerce, um, just to kind of stay ahead of it. And, and something like this certainly is interesting. I'll definitely have to listen to it and for you as a listener if you want to listen to it as well um, it's called jukebox and i'm sure you can check it out so for me barry i'm interested then to hear if for every sample have they just saved a couple of them down or can you actually yourself click a button and wait nine hours to get a brand new source of audio yeah chad that's the idea of open source code is that everybody can go and play around with this and you can potentially take that code and run it on 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 your computer and kind of get that kind of result i'm afraid if you're using a normal laptop (laughs) it's going to take you way longer than nine hours these guys are running on crazy supercomputers but if you're able to get some sort of amazon web services account or something and run on very very powerful computers you could create your own samples and so maybe if you're looking for that hit you you've been waiting you've been trying to break into the the top 40 uh charts maybe this is your way to use ai to get you that hit yeah it's really interesting i wonder if any a and r departments of any large record labels have got these massive farms of computers going at the moment with all of these potential <laughs> new records to shift on to some of their artists certainly certainly an interesting development and i'm glad you brought it up barry let's move on to our next segment develop and grow Develop and grow, the segment where we try and get better as a human. We try and improve our mental and our physical health and try and push our lives forward, hopefully inspiring you to do the same. This week, Chad, uh, we've only got one item on here. It's been nice and quick. I I watched a fascinating interview with Stephen Fry, who's one of my favorite humans in the whole world. And he was talking about intelligence and mental health on this very obscure kind of site. It's this health supplement site. It had only about 2,000 people watching, which for someone like Stephen Fry is a very low number. I'm sure he had tons of other invites to much bigger shows and much bigger media. But he chose to speak to this one because for him, intelligence and mental health are a very key part of his story. 
For those who don't know, Stephen Fry is obviously one of the most intelligent people in the world. He's incredible with his command over the English language and has written amazing books and podcasts and all that good stuff. But at the same time, he struggled with mental health throughout his life. He was diagnosed later in life with bipolar disorder and with ADHD. But for most of his life, he really struggled with mental health. And and if you read some of his books, he talks about how he got suicidal at some points and whatnot and really struggled with this battle between he was immensely intelligent but couldn't figure out his own emotions. And he couldn't right. figure out how to like, make himself feel better. And now I think it's something we often find ourselves in. Intellectually, we know the sorts of things we can do to improve our lives and to improve how we do things. But intellectually and emotionally don't match sometimes. And you've got to be able to, to, to walk that tightrope. And so it was a really cool interview. And I, I encourage you to go and find it on YouTube if you'd like. I pulled out one quote, which kind of talks to a topic that's come up a lot during this yeah. podcast, Chair, the topic of intellectual humility and talking about how to admit when we don't know something. Yeah. We've talked about it at length because we both believe that we need more of it in the world. And so when I heard this quote, I thought that was perfect because it's exactly what he's talking about. And what he said was, not knowing is the greatest privilege of intelligence. Intelligence is the confidence to admit what you don't know. Yeah. The most intelligent of all of us are those who are keenly aware of where the limits of our knowledge are. Yep. What do you think of that, Chad? It resonated with me straight away. I mean, I've we've brought it up, like you said, quite a few times, Barry. And uh, this is really where I think a lot of people need to go to kind of identify those gaps in your knowledge and own them. Own the gaps. Be humble about what you don't know. And, uh, you know, for me, just to look at this graph, which which you put here, which is a graph, um, I believe, called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I haven't actually seen before. Now, talk us through this, because I think this is an illustration that, obviously, our people on our podcast can't see, uh, but one that I think could add a lot of value. Yeah, I think it's worth Googling if you haven't seen it before. It's one of my favorite graphs, and I think it sums up a lot of our intellectual discourse and some of our politics, to be honest, as well, is when... We get caught up in the charisma of somebody, right? We, when people, when someone speaks quite confidently and they sound like they know what we're doing, then they kind of run away with us and yep. we kind of believe everything they say. So if you imagine trying to learn a new skill or learn about a new topic, you start off right at the beginning with the zero competence and zero confidence because yep. you know you know nothing, right? And when you start to learn about it, you, you learn, you learn, you learn. You get to a point where you know just enough to be dangerous. Yep. So you kind of break through kind of the beginner's knowledge. You kind of break into the intermediate stuff. And all of a sudden, you think you, you know the stuff yep. because you've learned a couple of concepts. They start to make sense to you. And you have this elevated confidence, this giant peak in the graph where you're like, okay, I actually know what's going on. I know, I know just enough to be dangerous. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of people stick on that spike of the curve, right? They think that they know everything, even though they really don't. Yep. If you push forward and you keep learning, you keep learning, what you start to realize is you start to realize more and more what you don't know. And the more you learn, the more you realize there's so much more to this topic than you thought. Yep. So even though you're learning more and your competence is getting better, your confidence starts dipping at a, at a rate of knots yep. because you start to realize, oh, wow, there's so much more. There's so many more layers to this. There's so much more depth to this topic. And over time, you can learn, 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 learn. If you keep going, you eventually will raise to that same confidence level you had in the beginning with enough time, with enough effort. And so this graph is really, really um, illustrative about how we think about knowledge, about how we think about beliefs, and it really does have applications across the board. So it's really worth Googling because if you can understand this graph and understand how your emotions attach to knowledge or attach to beliefs, you can be a clearer thinker and realize that there's a lot that we don't know. Absolutely. And I love the fact that even at the end of the graph, so even at the expert end of it, where the confidence returns back up to that peak that it once hit, there's still a disclaimer there that. I'm good, 
but I know where my limitations are. And I think that's an important piece to this graph as well, is that even though that confidence returns, that confidence is not blind confidence, not the same type of confidence as the previous peak. And for me, that's really important. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people need to take that on. That's the fry quotes in a nutshell, right? If you know where those barriers are, you really do understand the limits of your knowledge and you're able to let go of that pride and that ego yeah. and to say, I don't know something. Yeah. And once you get to that point and you can do it without feeling like it's a weakness, it becomes a superpower because all of a sudden you can be curious about something and really push the boundaries of what you're learning and make real progress rather than fake progress by pretending to know something that you don't. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Barry. I think that ego piece is the key here. And for some reason, I think we attach a lot of pride and a lot of that ego to our knowledge. And uh, we really shouldn't. Um, I, I think if we kind of drop it, we'll be able to certainly advance a bit more as a human race. So yeah, I will certainly go and have a look at that uh, piece, which really looks like a great little piece of video. Uh, Stephen Fry is the guy who was on QI as well. Yeah, he was. QI is, a, is an amazing show and he was on there for a good 10 or 12 seasons. Yeah. He's now stepped away and Sandy Togsvig has taken over, but he was kind of the, the main person there for a long time and, and that show was made for him because of his random yeah. knowledge, his amazing memory and his command of the English language. It really was an amazing show. Amazing. Let's now move on to what's on your mind. What's on your mind? So the first one, I'm going to let you talk me through it, Barry, because I got the question this past week and I straight away burst out into laughter. <laughs> yes, our dear friend Annika sent this question. So thank you, Annika. We really appreciate it. We know that you and Philip were having a huge debate over the dinner table <laughs> as to which of these options it was. And it's a very important topic, Chad. That wonderful jingle that you made for us at the beginning of the show, that very, very catchy jingle that everyone is singing in their head or humming in their head when they finish the podcast of Across the Pond. The question is, Chad, is it option one where it's ah across the <laughs> pond or is it ah across the pond? Very subtle difference there. Very important material difference. Chad, yep. let the fans know what is the reality. I have to, unfortunately, Annika, say that it's neither. It starts with <laughs> pond across the pond. And uh, yeah, that's that's the thinking. So really sorry that neither of those options is correct. But I find it fantastic that you actually even asked that kind of question and are analyzing every single piece of our episode to that degree. Really appreciate it. <laughs> it's probably the best possible result, Chad, because none of them win the arguments. Then it's kind of an even <laughs> playing field. We haven't hurt any feelings. So I think it's a good answer. Absolutely. Now, the next question is a lot more deep than that previous one. And uh, Barry, I'm going to throw this one over to you, but let me introduce the question. So this one is from Angela. Thank you so much for your question. And the question is, what are the parallels or crossovers between stoicism and religion? Barry, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to kind of get into the details. And for a lot of people who don't have an understanding of, the, of Stoicism or of religion in, in a sense, this question might not make sense to most people. Let me try and unpack it as best I can to give as much value as possible to those listening. So Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy that was popular a couple hundred years ago and was really popularized by Marcus Aurelius. And for some reason, it's seen a real resurgence in the last couple of years. I think a lot of modern authors have started to take a lot of the Stoic philosophy and, and really repackage it for a modern audience. <clears throat> And so if you look into the self-development genre right now, if you look at the self-help genre, a lot of those books are based on the back of Stoic principles. And so that's why Stoicism has kind of become relevant again in this, in this modern context, but obviously under different names and not under the name of Stoicism anymore. 
religion. The other side of the coin is that religion, of course, is is a philosophy if you think about it. So if you put, put aside the metaphysical stuff about whether there's a God and all those kind of dis- discussions, a lot of religion is philosophy. It's about how do you live your life? What kind of values do you live by? How do you try and treat other people, etc.? Sure. And so the natural question, of course, is what the one Angela asked is what are the parallels and, and do they kind of talk to each other? And uh, I can only really speak to Christianity because I don't have a good enough understanding of the other religions, but there really are lots of commonalities between Stoicism and Christianity. And that's to be expected because these things co-evolved, right? So um, if you think about it, as religion co-evolved, Stoicism was right there at the same time and often in the same kind of countries and the same environments. And even in some of the major Stoic texts, they talk a lot, quite a lot about God. And so there really is a lot of parallels and crossovers. And some of the things I've pulled out, which are hopefully of value to people, even if you haven't read this stuff, the first thing is to surrender things that aren't in your control that is a major stoic tenet and it talks a lot of our understanding of what is under your control what can you actually impact and what can't you and stop caring about things you don't have control over because when we worry about those things and we, we, we concern ourselves with things we can't control, we really can get into mental spirals that can be quite negative. And so that's a very stoic understanding. And it's very similar in, in Christianity. Like you, you surrender things that aren't your control. You, you say to God, you have a plan for my life and therefore I'm going to surrender that control to him. So that's one parallel. The second parallel is to stop focusing on worldly things. Right, all philosophers are talking about don't be materialistic. Like what's not what's important is not what you own, it's not the car you drive, it's not the house you have, it's about your inner character. And so stop focusing on worldly things yeah. and focus more internally and, and, and those sorts of things. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much status you have, it's about your character and your virtue. <clears throat> And that, again, is a very Christian idea as well, to start focusing on, on things of this world and to think more deeply about those those issues. The third thing is, is, is what I've mentioned, your character and your virtue matter more than your status, right? So in Stoicism, it doesn't care if you're a doctor, if you're a investment banker, if you're a high politician, it doesn't matter what your status is, it's your character and your virtue. What kind of person are you? What kind of human are you? How do you treat those people who are potentially in lower status environments in your, in your society? And those sorts of things are also very Christian about your character and your virtue. They really matter a lot. And the last piece is that of humility. Humility to understand that we are not the center of the universe, right? And yeah. In both Stoicism and religion, that's kind of one of the key, key points. You are not the center of the universe. And to be honest, you're quite cosmically insignificant. And so treat yourself that way. Don't yeah. take yourself so seriously. Don't think that... that everything is being done to you a lot of the times humility is is what's needed to really realize your place in this world and takes a lot of the pressure off and makes you be a kinder human being if you realize that you're not the only thing that matters in this in this world and so those are some of the parallels between the two i hope i'll answer the question a little bit and chad i hope it makes a little bit of sense even if you haven't read anything about the two philosophies absolutely well that's pretty much me so thanks barry for detailing all of that out there very nicely i like the question and i like that it asks about the crossovers i think when it comes to these kinds of philosophical debates a lot of the content of those debates are the differences and people get very emotional about differences so i really like the fact that there are people who are looking for crossovers Um, and even if you look at cross religion i I think there are sometimes especially if you strip it down to these kinds of generic levels quite a lot of commonalities and i think we need to look more for the commonalities than for the differences definitely it really is important to see what is what is parallel right and see where these ideas are coming from a lot of these ideas of ancient ancient ideas that are coming from a long time ago and they've been repackaged in a thousand different ways and if you can spot those repackagings you can really see real wisdom that is not tainted by politics 
or dogma or kind of these these strongly held beliefs but rather they are really wisdom that's coming through the ages and uh, those those parallels are important to focus on absolutely well hopefully you got something out of that as well now the last question um, is from Giovanni Zambri who basically just wants to flag the hassle that uh, South Africans overseas who are trying to renew their passports during this time are having and all that we can really add is that we're really empathetic um, with anyone who's struggling during this time um, especially with those kinds of practical measures um, obviously really important things but all being in lockdown and really just looking to try and survive during this time I suppose it is just one of those things if you have to deal with those practical things what do you think barry yeah it's really unfortunate chad i think that we're going to see a lot of troubles in the next couple of months when it comes to passports and visas and all these sorts of things yeah. uh, as as these travel bans start to unlock and start to reopen who knows if these visa requirements are going to stay the same who knows if passports are going to be as easy to get yeah. and understandably during lockdown you might not be able to do the admin but moving forward we have to wait and see how it changes the way international travel is done and so obviously people like giovanni are trying to get their passport done now before things change yeah. uh, but who knows we can only hope for the best and hopefully Giovanni, you can find a solution for your problem. And for all those South Africans trying to get home, we are we are our thoughts are with you. We hope you can get home in some way. I know some of my friends are still trying to get ex- expatriation flights yeah. and that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of people with this particular problem, Chad. Absolutely. And I suppose it just asks the question of when the kind of online passport renewal process is actually going to kick into effect properly in South Africa. Certainly, I know across the world, there's very, very good uh, online processes that you know make these kinds of bits of admin a lot easier for citizens of their countries. And uh, hopefully, we'll see that soon as well. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another very, very jam-packed episode. It took us a heck of a long time to record as well. Something about recording in the evening again, Barry, was very different for us. There's something in the water, Chad. There's something in the water for those who've listened to this podcast it probably sounds silky smooth i can assure you it definitely was not there were a lot of bloopers that you won't hear and uh we we tried our best for some reason we weren't on our top game today chad hey it happens i suppose it's one of those where we just we're human right and everyone i suppose has on and off days well hopefully you enjoyed listening to it nevertheless and hopefully you'll be back next week to listen to across the pond this was episode 26 and we'll see you soon oh.